Uh, for the past nine months, we've been reading and hearing from the Word of God in the Gospel of John. We've been studying it here on Sundays. We've been studying it in our community groups on Wednesday, Thursdays, and Fridays. And today, after a nine-month-long journey, uh, we will wrap up our study by looking at John's concluding statement in chapter 20. You know that John is the only book in the Bible with an actual clear purpose statement. It's the only book that sums up or tells us the reason why it was written in the first place. And so, what is the reason? Why was John written? And why did we spend so much time in it the past nine months? It's this, as he writes in today's passage. John has wrote this gospel so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we may have life in his name. Today, as we conclude this series, I want to talk about faith. I want to talk about what does it mean to actually believe in Jesus, and what are some common misconceptions behind faith? And so today, I want to explore the relationship between two things. I want to explore the relationship between faith and sight, and I want to explore the relationship between faith and doubt. So first, faith and sight. You know, there's a common misconception out there that in the Christian faith, that in the Christian world, that faith and sight are opposed to each other. In other words, many people think that to believe in Jesus means to go against sight. It means to go against what one sees with their eyes. And many talk about the Christian faith as being a blind faith. There are some Christians when asked, why is it that you believe? They say, I don't know, I just believe. Or, I don't know, you just got to feel it. I don't know, you just know. And nothing could be further from the truth, friends. And I know this might sound strange and maybe new to some of you, but biblical faith, the Christian faith, is actually based on sight. The Christian faith is founded on sight. This is what John says in John 19, okay? John, he's at the foot of the cross. He sees Jesus being crucified. He sees it all. And this is what John says. He says this, he who saw it has bore witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. In other words, when John is writing about the life of Jesus, when he's telling us about his teachings, about his crucifixion, about his resurrection, John isn't saying, hey, you know what? We heard some rumors across the town, a few villages over. We heard some things about this man, and this is my side of the story. No, he's not, he's not saying that. He's not saying, you know what, I've imagined these things. Um, you know, I, I, I dreamt of these things. Uh, you know, I, 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 got, I gained influence from some of these other figures. And, you know, this is, this is the Jesus that I'm presenting to you. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, you know what, I, I woke up one morning, I was on social media, I was going through it, and you know what, I just read the headlines, but I thought it was good, so I decided to share it with everyone. He's not saying that. 
What he's saying is, I saw it. I was there. And now I am writing this, bearing witness to you. Believe because I saw it. It happened. You know, even in today's passage, when Thomas hears that the other disciples have encountered the resurrected Jesus, when Thomas hears that Jesus appeared to some of the other disciples, Thomas says, no way, no way. I don't believe that. I don't believe you. You know, a dead person rising from the dead was just as absurd to Thomas as it is to us today. Okay? People back then didn't believe in that, that people would just rise from the dead. So Thomas said, no way, I'm not going to believe that. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus physically appears to Thomas. He physically appears to Thomas, and what Thomas sees with his eyes and with his hands, he actually touches Jesus. He touches the mark of the nails. He touches where, where the soldiers pierced his side. He touches it, he feels it, and he sees it. And Thomas believes. So you see, the biblical faith, or the faith that Scripture presents to us, is not blind faith. It's faith founded on sight. And those who saw Jesus wrote these accounts. Those who saw Jesus, witnessed Jesus, they now are bearing witness through the Scriptures so that we also might believe. Now, some of us might have a problem with this, okay? Some of us might have a problem with this. Because some of you might be thinking, well, you know what? Even though the disciples saw Jesus, I need to see him, right? I have to see to believe. I don't know if some of you are like that. But I want you to know, if that's your position, if that's your disposition, that's how you feel, like, hey, I got to see Jesus myself. I want you to know that in all spheres of life, in, in everything that we uh, know and interact with, in everything, the eyewitness testimony of a few people is sufficient for all other people to believe, even though they didn't see it. You see, if that was not the case, if eyewitness testimony was not sufficient, if that's not the case, then you know a jury would never be able to come to a decision on anything, even though they have eyewitness testimony, because they didn't see it. When you go to your mechanic, right, you don't go and stand there with him, you know, with your hands folded, watching him as he works on your car. No, you drop your car off, and he says, this is what I saw, this is what need fixing, so I fixed it, and now here is your car. If you have to see to believe, then you would never believe in any historical figure because you never saw that person. You know, about 10 years ago, I was uh, closely walking with a brother. He was a college student in pharmacy school at St. John's, and uh, he was trying to find his way back to the Christian faith. And the Lord sort of led us together, and I met with him weekly. We were praying together, and we were studying Scripture together, and I was trying to encourage him back to the Christian faith. Now, one day I receive a call from him. He calls me up, and he says, my life is over. So I ask him, hey, hey, what's going on? 
And he says, I'm really embarrassed to tell you this, but I got caught cheating on my exam. And my professor, he told me I'm going to lose my scholarship and possibly get kicked out. I don't know what to do. Now, again, I, he did something wrong. But for some reason in that moment, I was just so worried and concerned about him that I started calling people that I know in that school. I said, hey, find out the name of this professor. Find out who he is, please. I found out his name. I Google him. His number comes up, right? I know all of his relatives now, right? And I give him a call. And I said, hey, listen, my name is Stephen, but I want to make an appointment with you. I don't tell him who I am. And so he says, yes, why don't you come over at such and such a time? So I make an appointment. I go on campus, and I meet him. And he asks me, who are you? Are you in my, one of my classes? And I say, no. I'm here because of this student. I know that he cheated, and I know that you're going to fail him. And I know these things are going to happen. And I look at him, and I say, can you please give him another chance? When he sees me, when he hears this name, he is irate. He's saying, no way. He cheated. He needs to pay. That time, I don't know what came over me. I, I don't condone cheating at all, but I don't know what came over me. I was just thinking about this brother and the progress that we've made. So I get up from my seat, and I get on my knees, and I start to beg him. I say, please, please, sir, would you reconsider? When he sees this, he's so shocked. He gets up from his seat, and he gets down on the floor, and he's kneeling to me, and he's begging me, please, please, get up. Get up, don't do this. This is not right. And he says, please, have a seat. Let's talk about it. So I get up, we sit down, and we start, and we start to talk. He says, who are you? And I said, well, you know, I, I'm a pastor. And it's not that I condone cheating, but I love this brother, and I'm really concerned about him. And I'm just simply asking, would you be able to give him another chance? And he says, oh, you're a pastor. That's great. I've been meaning to talk with a pastor. <laughs> and he says, sit down. Let's talk a little bit. And he starts sharing a little bit about his life. And he says, you know, I've been going to church for some point, for some time now. And I was never convinced about Jesus. I go to church. I fellowship with the people. But this Jesus figure, I cannot believe. The Bible isn't enough. I need to see Jesus. Now, I thought that his insistence on seeing to believe was not in line with the way in which we normally accept truth. So I asked this professor, I said, he's a math professor, I asked him, hey, do you believe in George Washington? And he says, yes, of course I do. And I said, why do you believe in him when you've never seen him before? You've never seen him. And I said, the reason why you believe that George Washington existed and he's done the things that he did is because you have historical records. We have primary sources. We have eyewitness testimony dating back to the time when he lived. We have real testimony. And I sat there trying to convince him that the Gospels, namely John, is actually an eyewitness account. And after talking for about a good 30 minutes, the professor looks over to me and says, you know what, I never thought about that before. And, you know, after, you know, talking and debating and conversating, I said, he, you know, he eventually promised, you know, I'll go back and I'll read my Bible. 
And it was, it was one of those moments where the Spirit really opened up his heart, and I, and I prayed for him there. And I said, listen, if you really want to have faith, you need to go to Scripture. You need to go to testimony. You know, I think we overlook this important fact that the Gospels, except for Luke, Matthew, Mark, and John, the Gospels are all firsthand accounts of Jesus. They are eyewitness testimonies of what Jesus did and who he was. They are documents communicating historical events and incidents. You know, can I get real geeky for a moment here? Um, you know, whenever, every time I ask that question, I've never had a congregation say, no, don't. So I'm going to get a little geeky here, okay? You know how today we have certain rules and conventions for history writing, right? So let's say if you want to write a history book, there are certain rules that you have to follow. You just can't, you just can't say, oh, I'm going to write history and write it. There are rules that you have to follow, rules for good history writing. Well, back then, in the New Testament, it was no different. There were common conventions and accepted practices for history writing. Take, for example, this man, okay? His name is Lucian. He's a well-known writer. Um, he, he spoke a lot. He was a philosopher. He was a teacher. He did a lot of these things. He's a secular guy, non-Christian, okay? But this is what he says with respect to history writing. If you want to write history, okay, this is good history. He says this, as to the facts themselves, the historian should not assemble them at random, but only after much laborious and painstaking investigation. He should, for preference, be an eyewitness, but if not, he should listen to those who tell the more impartial story. In other words, Lucian, as he's talking about what history writing is, what it ought to look like, he's saying this, the history writer should spend a lot of time studying, going through the details, and the history writer should, the best history writer, is someone who was an eyewitness. An eyewitness testimony, an eyewitness account has the highest level of credibility. You know, the Gospels fall under that standard. The Gospels fall under the genre. If you ask any person living in the first century to read the Gospels and you tell them and you ask them, what genre is this? They'll say, this is historical biography. It's historical biography. The Gospels don't start with, you know, once upon a time and end with they lived happily ever after because that signals that it's a fairy tale. If you look at the Gospels and you read it carefully, they're filled with names, they're filled with dates, they're filled with locations. You know why? Because when the Gospels were, you know, produced, when they were published and they were circulated, many of these people were still alive. These locations were accessible. They can go back and verify. And so, if you were a person living during this time, the Gospel of John produced uh, at the end of the first century, you can go to a town called Bethany, and you can seek out a man named Lazarus, who was in John 11. You can go to that town, you can find him and his sisters, Mary and Martha, and you can verify the story. Did this really happen to you? See, the biblical writers are basing now their faith on what they saw, and they are writing these accounts telling us about them so that we would also believe.
So friends, our faith is not based on hearsay. It's not based on myth or legend or speculation like the weather yesterday. But biblical faith is based on eyewitness testimony. Eyewitness testimony. That's why Jesus says in verse 29, blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. As Jesus knows now, this testimony is going to come down to believers and to the church. And so for you Christians, friends, people here, the encouragement is not to believe blindly. Don't just believe blindly. Don't just say, I know because I know. That's the worst circular argument. There's no way to break it. I know because I know. <laughs> Don't believe blindly, but believe on the accounts that we have. There's a direct correlation between faith and sight. The next thing that I want to explore is the relationship between faith and doubt. Just as faith and sight are not antithetical, just as they are not opposed to one another, so also faith and doubt are not mutually exclusive. Faith and doubt are not two neat categories where you're either in one or you're in the other. In other words, to say you have faith doesn't mean that you don't doubt. Faith and doubt, according to Scripture, they are not black and white. There's a man named Barnabas Piper. Some of you might know of him. It's a man named Barnabas Piper. He is the son of the famed John Piper. Those of you who, know, who don't know, John Piper is perhaps one, you know, the most influential Reformed preacher in the past 20, 30 years. He has a son. You can tell by his name, Barnabas, that he's a pastor's kid. But there's this guy named Barnabas Piper who grew up under the teaching and the preaching of his, of his own father. He grew up in the Christian, you know, Christian household. He grew up in church. He did everything. He, he memorized all the scripture verses. He, he was a good Christian. He even went to a Christian college, Wheaton College. But you know, there was a time in his life where he struggled so much with his faith. And he tells this story in a book that he wrote, Help My Unbelief. You know, Barnabas Piper says, for a long time he thought that being a solid Christian meant having no doubt, meant having that you didn't doubt in any way and that you could defend and explain everything about the Bible. He thought that as a believer, having doubt was a sign of weakness. I mean, he grew up as a pastor's kid. But what would happen if he came out and he said, you know, I'm starting to doubt my faith. And for a long time, he reasoned, you know, it's just more, much safer. It's better for my family if I just stay in these nicely organized, easily explained, strongly fortified worlds of belief. If I just stay here, it's okay. But one day, as he was wrestling with this, not knowing how to articulate it or explain it or even talk about it, his life started to crumble. His marriage was in shambles. They just had their kid, and their marriage was falling apart. He had lost his job because of a habitual sin, a sin that he was dealing with for decades actually came out into the open. 
He was fired from his job, and he was struggling deeply with his faith. And he was feeling so guilty about struggling. I'm the pastor's kid. I am John Piper's son. How can I have any doubt? But as he was stumbling through Scripture in this moment of crisis, he read a story in Mark 9. Mark 9 tells a story about a father who has a sick son, a son who has this unclean spirit. And the father, he brings the son to Jesus. This son desperately needs healing. And the father brings the son to Jesus, and the father says, if he can do anything, please have mercy on us, have compassion and help us. And Jesus responds, what do you mean, if you can? All things are possible if you believe. And the father responds in this way, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. Barnabas Piper talks about how this statement summed up where he was and how he felt. I believe. Help my unbelief. And Barnabas starts to pray through that. If Jesus did not turn this father away, he will also hear me in my doubt and in my wavering. You know, friends, this should resonate with a lot of us. Some of us are in the category of faith, yet we know that sometimes faith is not mutually exclusive with doubt. And I think John understands this. You know, when John writes the gospel, he has two people in mind or two parties in mind. He says this. He says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And of course, the immediate people that we think of are non-believers. John is writing to non-believers. He's writing to the untouched, the unreached world. He wrote this so that people who don't know Jesus would know Jesus. But you know, John is also writing to believers. Another way to translate this verse is this. These things are written so that you may Keep on believing that Jesus is the Christ. So not only was John written to non-believers with people who, you know, didn't know Jesus, he was also writing to believers. He was also writing to people who knew this story already. But he wrote this story to the church. He wrote this story to believers because he knew that believers needed strengthening. He knew that believers needed reminders. He knew that there were believers who were doubting. And so he writes this gospel to them. He writes this well-known story to them so that they may keep on believing. They may continue to believe. That's why this purpose statement comes after Thomas's story. The doubting Thomas. And when Jesus tells Thomas, don't disbelieve, but believe, John knew very well that we all needed to hear this. We all needed to hear the words of our Lord, don't disbelieve but believe. As you read through the scriptures, as you read through the eyewitness testimony, lay, may your doubt disappear. Don't disbelieve, but believe.
Friends, doubt and unbelief in the life of a believer, though it might sound like an oxymoron, is a real thing. You know, as Christians, we don't have to pretend like we're all buttoned up, like we're all riding shotgun on the train of assurance. Yeah, doubt never entered my mind, said no Christian ever. Jesus himself knew that we would lose heart. Jesus knew that our hearts would become troubled, that we would waver, that we would be filled with doubtful belief. But that is why God, in his providence and his provision, gave us this word. He gave us this word so that we may read it and we may keep on believing. You know, many people think that the Bible is only for those who have strong faith. But many people, for some strange reason, Christians think that, you know, if you have any doubt, you need to take care of that doubt before you come to the Word. Many people think if you've sinned, you need to take care of that sin before you can come to the Word. Those are Satan's biggest lies. The word was given to those who doubt. The word was given to those in sin. The word was given to us, to you and to me, to the church, so that in our doubt we may receive it and we may keep on believing. You know, there are two types of people, right, who go to the gym, right? There are those who go to the gym because they are fit and they're fit, and they're, you know, they're going to the gym to continue to stay fit and to, to get stronger and to get more fit. But there are also those, you know, who go to the gym for the very first time. Right? You know what that's like, right? I, I know very well what that's like as growing up as a very skinny, scrawny little kid. I hated going to the gym because it was so intimidating. And I had this idea in the back of my mind, you know what, I'm not ready to go to the gym yet. I have to get fit first, and then I can go to the gym. I mean, you guys, some of you laugh, but you resonate with me, right? Isn't the gym sometimes intimidating when you see these big buff people like pumping iron and people on a treadmill going for hours? You're like, oh my goodness, I'm not supposed to be here. That's why a gym called Planet Fitness appeared, right? <laughs> For those type of people. But see, that's, that's the wrong idea. That's the wrong mentality. You know, you go to the gym because we're not fit, because we need to exercise, because we feel unhealthy. See, many of us, we think that, you know, when we come to the Bible, we can't come with doubt. We can't come with fear. We can't come with sin. No. That's why the word was given to us, so that in our doubt and our fear, we may come to Scripture and we may find Christ again, and that we may keep on believing. Just like the song by Journey, don't stop believing. Hold on not to the feeling, but hold on to the word. So as we sum up our study with John, I mean, if you just think back the past nine months, what was it? Just think back in your life the past nine months. I know it's a blur, but think back the past nine months. What was it that kept you believing? What was it that kept you in the faith?
It was not your will. It was not your effort. It was the Word. The Word. And nine months from now, nine years from now, 90 years from now, that which will help you continue to believe is the Word of God. You know, I've been deeply in the Word. I've been listening to it. I've been studying it. Yet I've been struggling with my belief. Also said no Christian ever. You know, I know some of you are probably sick of John at this point. We talk about it every Sunday. You guys study it on Fridays and Thursdays and Wednesdays. And some of you think, man, this guy Jesus, he's so repetitive. He says the same thing over and over again. Some of you guys are probably sick of it and relieved that we're finished. But I just want to encourage you, don't let another 10 years go by before you read it again, before you go back to it. I want to encourage you, as we finish it today, go back this week and read it again. Keep going back to it again and again and again. Mind the scriptures. Mind the scriptures. Discover the deep truths of God. Oh, the riches of the mercies and the mysteries of God. Who can fathom these things? When we started off, I, I told you that John has, it, it's, it's shallow enough that a baby can swim and not drown, but it's deep enough that an elephant could bathe. Continue to mind the scriptures. Continue to go back to it. Go back to the deep truths of Christ. This is where our assurance comes from, friends. As we struggle with doubt and unbelief, we go back to the scriptures and we discover a Christ who was never, not for a single moment, unwavering with respect to us. We find a Christ who never once doubted his mission and his call to save us. This is where we gain our confidence and our assurance as we go back to Scripture and discover a God who loved us before the foundation of the world, a God who promised to work out our salvation till the very end, a God who has promised us, who covenanted himself to us, Continue to go back to the scriptures. Go back to other parts of scripture. You know, there's nothing worse. There's nothing more dangerous than a seasoned Christian. There's nothing more dangerous than a seasoned Christian who says, oh, I know that part of the Bible and doesn't read it. There's nothing more dangerous than, oh, you know what? I've read that before. I've heard that before. I studied that before. I don't have to look at it again. Continue to mind the scriptures and discover in it Jesus, the Son of God, the Christ through which we find life. Now, if I can just share briefly with you, you know, when I, when I first came two years ago, it's been two years, while wow, time has really f flew by. Well, when, when I first came here two years ago, a number of people asked me, like, hey, what's your vision? What's your vision? What's your expectations for the church? What do you want to see the church do and become? You know, I told these people, you know, I know this might sound weird and maybe you've never heard this before, but my vision for the church, the only thing that I really want to do that I'm seriously committed to, that I would die for, is the only thing that I'm really committed to is my vision is to go through the entire Bible with our congregation 
to go through the entire Bible. Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament. To look at even the parts that people we never read, like Leviticus, to go through it, to mine it, to study it, and to discover it in Christ. And I, I don't, that's, that's my ambition for the church, to continue to study the scriptures together here on Sundays, in our community groups, in our fellowships, in our one-to-one -one meetings, to continue to study scripture together that we may abide in his word, that we may continue to believe until the day Jesus returns. And so for some of you who have, who are discouraged, some of you who are struggling with unbelief and doubt, go to the Bible. Continue to abide in it. And may God's voice be louder and clearer than all the other voices in this world. And may we as a congregation remain steadfast until Jesus' return. As we conclude this series, we say Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. Join me in prayer. Thank you.